0: at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. apply.
1: Hello, and welcome to Outward for the month of September. I'm Brian Lauder, editor of Outward, and I'm happy to announce that we are finally, officially, in goddamn decorative gourd season, bitches. So get festive.
2: Okay, (laughs) as you wish. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of The Waves, Slate's podcast about women and gender. And I'm currently calculating how much cleavage is too much cleavage for this family-friendly women's pro (laughs) soccer game I'm going to this weekend. Mm. I'm taking input. And... We have a very special guest host with us this month, Ruman Alam. Hi, Ruman.
3: Hi, how are you? I'm Ramon Alam. I'm a novelist. I'm one of the Karen Feeding columnists for Slate.
1: Such a great column.
3: And it might be decorative gourd season for you, but to me, it's back to school season. So that's uh, like what I'm dealing with at the moment. You're
1: also a parent. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that is true. So not so festive in your house. Well, maybe.
3: actually pretty festive. I mean, I almost <laughs> wept with joy when the kids went back to school. <laughs> to be
1: honest. Yeah, I'm sure that's exciting.
2: Congrats to them and thank, to you. Yeah,
1: thank you. Yeah, some quiet time. Well, that's wonderful. So with the change of seasons, we thought we'd freshen up our format a little bit. It occurred to us, looking back over the year, that the podcast has existed now, that there are only so many big themes in the world. And we had <laughs> used, I think, all of them, um, or almost all of them. So we decided to move the sort of format of the show to looking at big stories in queer life that are happening sort of around when we record and sort of in the discourse each month and uh, talk about those and then see what bigger discussions we can pull out of them. So it's pretty simple. Hope y'all all all like it. This month, we're going to think through the big report from August about research into gay genes, and then we'll tackle the news that McRae Game, previously a big proponent of conversion therapy, now disavows the practice and has affirmed his identity as a gay man.
2: Yeah, so I guess we kind of do have a theme, which is looking at how people determine if they're gay or or how people believe that people become gay. But before we get into that discussion, we're going to kick things off with our September prides and provocations. Ruman, as our new third, why don't you start us off?
3: Yeah, I am sort of a temperamentally provoked person but I <laughs> Join wanted the club. to I <laughs> wanted to write in it. <laughs> I wanted to begin on a positive note so I'm going to talk about pride and uh, this year my family vacation we spent 12 days on Fire Island nice. which is a little enclave not far from New York City and Cherry Grove or Pines We were in Cherry Grove uh-huh. and it is sort of like historically more of a lesbian community but it's pretty mixed and it, you know there's this old joke about Um, somebody saying to a gay person on the street, like, there should be an island for you guys, Mm -hmm. and the response being, well, there is. It's called Manhattan. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But the truth is that that island for gay people is actually Fire Island, and I am a novelist. I don't have a job. I send my kids to public school in Brownstone, Brooklyn. Like I have a very comfortable out life. And so I never think of myself as needing a place to be among my people. Mm -hmm. And it was funny to be there and realize how powerful it can be to actually be surrounded by gayness. And it was especially affecting to me this time to see so many elderly gay people. Mm-hmm. Mm. That was one of my favorite things about this trip because we were there you know, over the weekdays when the party crowd is kind of on the weekends. And then over the weekdays, you see a lot of older people who have owned homes out there for a long time. And there's something great about seeing... Just the previous generation of gay and lesbians still out there having their getaway from mm-hmm. it all. Yeah.
2: Had you been there before?
3: I have. We've been going there for gosh since before we had kids, but it's quite oh, a different wow. experience now to go there with the children. Kids, yeah. You know? And it's just such a it's such a beautiful place. It's so relaxed. It's so um, non-judgmental. Mm-hmm. and it's so diverse in this strange way. It's just all different kinds of bodies, all different kinds of people yeah. mixing and um, it's sort of idyllic, mm-hmm. you know, and you go to the grocery store that's run by this Sikh couple from Long Island and spend $11 on a package of hot dogs. And it's <laughs> yeah. just like, what could be better? <laughs> what could be better as a vacation? And I think it's very powerful for my kids to see that also, to see that there are so many varieties of family. We live in yeah. one specific, you know, variation of family, but we're not the only people who are defining what family is for ourselves, and I think it's affecting to see that. Yeah,
1: that's wonderful.
2: Yeah. Brian, what about you?
1: Well, I have a similar one, actually. So I just uh, got back, I guess, two weeks ago now from New Orleans. I had gone, and Christina, you were there too, for a lesbian and gay LGBT journalism conference. But it also happened to be Southern Decadence, which is a big annual sort of Mardi Gras style party uh, for queer people in New Orleans that I've never been to. Sure, it was
2: a total coincidence that the Queer Journalist Convention was there. the
1: (laughs) scheduling may have been thoughtful on their part, on the organization's part. I truly didn't know about it when I like, you know, scheduled the trip and then uh, found out later that they were at the same time, which was great. But a sort of similar pride there uh, to you, Ramon. I had never been to a thing like this where queer people, you know, we have our bars and our clubs and our sort of traditional establishments that we get to Uh, congregate in and in New Orleans during this time um, it's just like a huge street Event So people are at those places, but they're also just out everywhere. And there are just so many queer people. I think it's like three or four hundred thousand, something like that, queer people come in to New Orleans for this. Wow. It's nuts. And, you know, it has all the beauty of people partying and being sexy together and sort of having that kind of thing. But also being defiant. I encountered at one part of Bourbon Street at a certain point a group of anti-gay, like religious folks who were protesting decadence and, you know, Westboro Baptist style, like screaming. Um, with signs and all that and our family was out there you know twerking in front of them and making out in front of them and doing all that stuff um which was really gorgeous so southern decadence is amazing i highly recommend it and i really hope it becomes a part of my annual life because it was it was really beautiful especially in the south to see something like that going on Awesome, christina what about you
2: I am both proud and provoked this month by the same thing. Um, I can hold two things in my head at once. (laughs) So last night, uh, at the time we're recording this, last night there was the third Democratic presidential debate, which I watched and covered for Slate.
3: You're a brave woman. Mm -hmm.
2: (laughs) It was a lot, but I enjoyed it. And one bit that really stood out to me was at the end where the moderators kind of gave the candidates lean to just Spill a little deets about themselves. You know, what was a personal setback or a professional setback you encountered in your life? And Pete Buttigieg, the only gay person on the stage, talked about um, coming out and doing so. You know, after serving in the military during Don't Ask, Don't Tell, serving as mayor in a state where Mike Pence, you know, arguably the most prominent anti-gay person in America, mm-hmm. was the governor. And it was somewhat moving to me as a queer person to see a gay person on the stage talking about coming out when, you know, just a little more than a decade ago, I remember in 2007, there was a presidential forum on LGBTQ issues during the Democratic primary that year. And two people didn't even go. Joe Biden and Chris Dodd didn't even show up to the forum. Mm. Only two people on the stage even said that they would support equal marriage, and they were Dennis Kucinich and Mike Gravel, who were sort of like <laughs> the joke candidates or like the long-shot candidates. To now, there's a, not only is there no one on the stage who would even dare come out against any LGBTQ rights, but there's an actual gay man talking about the calculations he had to make as a closeted guy in the military and in politics. It was incredible. Pro- and What
3: uh, provoked you about that, though?
2: Great question. <laughs> so... He didn't say the word gay. Mm. If you were just sort of half listening at home, you wouldn't even necessarily know what he was talking about. You know, and if especially if you didn't already know he was gay, it was just about like acknowledging who I was and Mm. like mentioned don't ask, don't tell. It's a small thing because it's not like he's hiding that he's gay. Obviously, like, you know, he's very much an out candidate. but. You got the sense that these were pre-written statements because it was a very open-ended question. It wasn't like, you know, they had sprung uh, something completely out of left field at the candidates and they had to think on their feet. The question was, you know, what was a personal or maybe professional setback in your life, which is, you know, they could pretty much pull any anecdote from their stump speech. So in this instance, it was a little strange. The reason why I was proud and provoked was it felt like we were simultaneously breaking new ground for queer people on the national stage. And also transported back a generation to where you could talk about being gay as long as you didn't outright say gay. Like
1: the word. Yeah. yeah. That is the
3: that is the Buttigieg candidacy in a nutshell, I think. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah.
2: So I'm sitting with both feelings right now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Hold space for that. I think that's fine. <laughs> but
2: But very glad that it happened. And I thought it was great that he took that as a moment to talk about it when, you know, he certainly could have talked about anything else in his life.
0: A woohooer, a hand-clapper, a high-fiver. I kind of like the high-five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions
2: 18+. So on that note, Brian, want to take us into our first topic?
1: Yes, I do, Christina. So last month, the journal Science published the largest ever genomic study designed to explore the origins of human sexual orientation. It looked at the genetic data and self-reported sexual histories of about half a million people and provided the most substantial evidence yet that while there is not a single gay gene, there does seem to be some fairly weak genetic basis for same-sex behavior spread over a few spots in the human genome. This news precipitated a flurry of coverage and discussion about where queerness comes from, of course, so we're going to talk about the implications of all of that today. I will say we're not going to get into like the scientific weeds of the study because that's not good for podcasting. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But if you want to read more about it, and I think it's really interesting, uh, I suggest you read evolutionary biologist and fellow gay Jeremy Yoder's piece in Outward called A New Age of Gay Genomics is Here. Are we ready for the consequences? Uh, And we'll definitely put that on the show page. So to start us off, I I feel like you know we all probably have our own internal belief or mythology about where our queerness comes from some mix of you know whether it's nature or nurture or essentialism and constructionism like there are all these words for it but I think we all kind of walk around with a sense of that for ourselves so I'd love to hear from you guys like how you characterize yours in the past and then what this news did to shift that or change it or, or if at all. I mean, speaking for myself,
3: I rarely think of any aspect of my life as being determined by genes, although mm. obviously many of them are. You know, the fact that you write with your right hand or the fact that you are a certain height or whatever, but it's just so removed from my self concept, mm-hmm. and so it's striking to read, I mean, of course there are many people who do this for a living and think about this for a living, and um, science to me is like ancient Greek or something it's sort of, you know, <laughs> meaningless, and I, not only did I look at the reporting around this study, I looked at the Broad Institute's mm-hmm. um, they have a sort of part of their website where several people at the institute talk about the study mm-hmm. and the methodology, and when I read about sort of scientific methodology, again, it's just sort of mind-blowing to me the way that they conducted this study Drawing on um, reporting from 23andMe yeah. and um, this sort of database of all white people, all um, you know, Western or European people, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and
1: the UK, I think, yeah.
3: And so it's just the way that we extrapolate what we accept as fact from these various particular sets of circumstances, that's how science is done. Mm-hmm. And it's weird for people who are not scientists, I think, to confront that and to think about, oh, this is how science is done, and this is how we end up with vaccines, or, <laughs> you know, all, a whole slate of other, you know, advances in society. So again, it just feels very removed from me, even though obviously it's not. Yeah.
2: For me, I've always felt that my queer identity is so much more than just, like, biological sexual attraction, which Mm -hmm. when I think about a genetic or biological basis for sexuality, I think of it in terms of physicality. So what do you find attractive? Who do you want to have sex with? And for me, it's so much more than that. Mm -hmm. Um, And sexual attraction and interest is just one part of it. You know, I think in a society that was totally gender equal, like, perhaps I would have been more, like, on the pansexual spectrum, especially considering that I've been attracted to, like, very feminine men and and very uh, masculine women. Like, gender and gender presentation and attraction to me is so non-binary that to think about a gene turning on or off, you know, telling me who I'd like to sleep with, it doesn't really square with Mm -hmm. the way I conceive of my sexuality, especially because sexuality isn't just about sex in in Mm -hmm. terms of identity. I mean, it's about power and relationships and sociality. It's a lifestyle, which I know I just sort of laughed (laughs) at, <laughs> it's segment, but sure. it, like for me, it is even if you don't hang out with other queer people. Which for me, a lot of it is about like the society that I find myself in and the communities I surround myself with. What about you, Brian?
1: So I've thought a lot about this because it's kind of part of my job to think a lot about it. And I'm writing about it in my book, and it's it's just it's in in the air for me a little bit more. And I think I've come to this weird like in between place, uh, between sort of a social view, like a constructionist view, if you like, um, of like where identity comes from. Christina, you were just talking about like how much of, of, uh, of gayness or queerness is, is sort of about where we live and who we hang out with and like our politics and like all of that stuff, which can't be genetic, right? Um, even some of these, the, the terms that we use to describe ourselves – can't be found genetically. They, then you're never, you're never going to find... Pansexuality, probably, is not something you would find in genes. Um, it's mm-hmm. something that is a, a as much a political commitment as it is anything else, um, or a statement, rather. However... I also watch home videos of myself as, like, a three-year-old and I look like a big queen. <laughs> so, like, clearly there's something there. Like, some, something. there's something deeper than just th- something that you, you encounter culturally later in life. I think there has to be, you know, something there about attraction probably for sure and, like, what, you know, smells and pheromones and all that stuff that you, that you find, like, arousing in a very basic way. But also there's something... There's something about the about gender expression too that that I don't mm-hmm. think we've quite found yet, um, but but that feels true to me. Um, and I just you know I, I I see that those videos of myself, and I also see kids you know around around the city walking with their parents. I'm like, yep, that's a gay. Okay. Like, like you can just <laughs> see it. Um, or you? I assume it. You know, I'm, I could be wrong, but like that is it, it does strike me uh, as being something that exists.
2: And then, but the, when you think about that, if you you know, take that kid 10 years down the line, you know, in another world, the very feminine kid who isn't being bullied or being Mm -hmm. told that they're gay or whatever, like could grow up to be a very feminine straight man.
1: Totally. Probably
2: not, not very often in this world, but in another one with different social influences, possibly.
3: I mean, the study's own finding... Mm -hmm. That genetic effects likely account for about 32 percent of whether someone will have same-sex sex is so specific that yeah. <laughs> it seems to answer something, but it actually doesn't. Because yeah. what you know, what accounts for that other 68 percent? Is it whether you went to Smith College or the University of Arizona? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't really. It's not. Uh, it, it's like you're saying, Brian. So much of this stuff. We counter with our anecdotal observations about ourselves or about, you know, other people in our lives. And, um, yeah, it is just it, it's the kind of thing that I feel a genetic study or a scientific study can never really get at. It's too big
1: or, maybe, yeah. you
3: know, maybe a century from now. It, science will have an answer about all of this stuff.
1: I think that's a good, actually a good sort of segue into what I wanted to ask about next, which was, you know, to the study's credit, it does differentiate between sexual like behavior and identity that the authors make a point of saying, we're not talking about, you know, gay, lesbian, Mm -hmm. LGBT. We're talking about like whether a person says they have had same sex sex, like Mm -hmm. in their life and how that correlates. But the So the, the the authors do that, but like our own sort of born this way uh, ideology or discourse that's been so prominent among the community for a couple of decades now, at least, doesn't do a good job of that. And we clearly want there to be a gay gene, or a lot of us do. It seems like that's a desire that a lot of people have. So I was curious if, if y'all have thoughts about why that is, like why do we, some of us, seek Certainty, an origin story for ourselves. Um, What's the appeal?
2: I mean, like the obvious answer to that is that it would, um, you know, one would hope force some people like the people we'll talk about in our next segment Mm. to realize like I can't change this person. They clearly are you know quote unquote born this way. If it's biologically based that means maybe God did it and if God makes people that way who are we to say that God is wrong. But I also think there might be some comfort in knowing for sure especially for people for whom you know, being gay has been a struggle, mm-hmm. or uh, or who maybe don't feel at home in LGBTQ spaces, but still want to be or are gay, identify as gay. Like maybe it could be some comfort to say, like, okay, I definitely know that this is who I am, or it's not who I am. Right. Um,
3: they want a diagnosis.
2: Right. Yeah, mm.
3: but even that, even that 32% figure doesn't. You know, it just doesn't account for all of these slippery cases where, you know, if you have had same sex sex, you can identify as a whole host of things. Mm-hmm. And right. <laughs> I mean, we all went to college, you know, like drunk. Yeah, like I know, drunk. Yeah, <laughs> like, I, know I, I know that from experience. <laughs> and that it just it just affirms, I think, that human sexuality is so complicated and so hard to reduce to I mean never forget about binary. We're talking mm-hmm. about like a much larger system than binary and it's still there are still not slots to fit every person or every case mm-hmm.
2: study.
1: Right, right. It's
2: It made me think of this question that the Washington Blade, which is our gay newspaper here, um, they do a series called Query, where they ask <laughs> an LGBTQ person 20 boilerplate questions about their lives. Um, and up until this April, for the past probably decade that they've been doing it, one of the questions was, if science discovered a way to change sexual orientation, what would you do? Mm and you know people some of the answers were something like i would protest it or like i would question why they w- science wanted to do that or you know i would stay gay i've struggled so hard to be accepted and now it's made me into this great person today one person <laughs> answered. Um, I would ask for it in pill form because there are a number of straight people I'd like to give it to. Um, so if you find, if you're able to find a genetic basis for sexual orientation, or, or, you know, even if you're able to identify these genetic factors that could contribute to your ability to be gay or something, um, you know, it also opens the possibility of straight people accessing genetic editing to turn themselves more likely to be gay. They thought of this book that came out in January called How to Date Men When You Hate Men, um, which is kind of a strain of um, heterosexual feminism that I both sympathize with and detest. Um, But I do wonder whether there are any women who might have been political lesbians back in the day when that was more of a thing um, would want to try to just genetically open themselves up to, to, to being gay or, you know and possibly there are some men who would want to do that too, but I can see less of a, a market for that. Um, but yeah, there's, that's, I think, the, the worst case scenario to a study like this or to um, future studies, which of course there will be future studies, is then people extrapolating that or, or taking that information into some sort of conversion, mm-hmm. like biological conversion therapy treatment.
3: There, yeah, there was a dissent quoted in the Times reporting, and I read, um, it was done as a blog post by a fellow at the Broad Institute, which conducted the study. And uh, this man, Joseph Vitti, wrote, a polygenic risk score for non-heterosexual behavior could easily be used to hurt queer people, mm-hmm. regardless of its limited or lack of predictive value. As scientists, we should not be making it available for misuse. So I think that there was like a, an ethical component where people within the Institute that conducted this research, we're concerned about what you're talking about, which is not the ability for straight people to
1: turn themselves gay, but in fact the, the universe. inverse, you know. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm glad you brought that up, because I, our writer as well, that the wrote the piece for Outward that I mentioned earlier, brought this up too, that, that you know, um, even though the results of this study showed, again, like a pretty weak um, correlation that it would be entirely possible to develop um, a bad test, Mm -hmm. uh, but a test nonetheless, uh, for embryonic screening from it. And he actually worries that someone will try to do this in the marketplace and that parents who, you know, don't want gay kids, queer kids, uh, would begin using it to screen uh, to screen their fetuses. Um, or their Which embryos. is crazy, because I think we can all agree that
3: having a gay kid is, like, best-case scenario. Well, see, you so I, well, you're a parent, so I actually wanted to ask
1: you, like, as a parent, like, how do you react to that notion? Because it's... Oh, uh, you know, that's just...
3: I don't even think you have to be a parent to feel mm-hmm. sort of icked out by that weird Gattaca way of <laughs> thinking about, um, you know, the, the, the panoply of the human race is just like it's a beautiful thing and f- tinkering with it to enforce some arbitrary standard of, you know, tall is better than shorter, you know, thin is better than fat is very distressing. And um, even though I think what the study is showing is that that's most unlikely to happen, mm-hmm. um, it is still... An ethical concern. I mean, clearly, this—the person I quoted before, or, or the person who wrote the Slate reporting—these are people who know they're—they're mm-hmm. they're geneticists and they understand the implications of the research that's being done. And it's worrisome. And I, I'm glad that we have ethicists grappling with this
1: stuff. I feel like I was—I was about to ask you guys if you um, want you know, want further research in this vein, but I'm, the sense I'm getting is, is no, or that, or that you're not super interested in it. And that's, well,
2: Would you uh, want to take this? Would you, you know, if you did 23andMe, because now you can do that when right. you take these tests, you can say, do I have these sort of genetic factors?
1: I feel a lot of tension actually around this because I am like super pro science. Generally, I, I like believe in the power of science to like make the world a better place and mm. and to explain. You know, I'm, I'm I watch Nova on PBS. <laughs> like I'm like I'm into, I'm into science and like want science to happen and basic science science just for curiosity's sake as well, not just like you know um, useful mar- to the capitalist market kind of science. But in this case, I find myself not wanting it to continue. Like, I, I just really feel uh, defensive is an interesting word, uh, uncomfortable, fearful, um, just like it's not not a good idea, guys. <laughs> like, could we just stop? It reminded me um, of a similar controversy that happened around
3: advancements in cochlear implants and oh, yeah. the belief among um, deaf deaf people certain certain parts of the deaf community that deafness is a culture or that it's not a disability to be fixed but that it is mm-hmm. sort of a way of mm-hmm. thi- approaching life and um that curing it i mean, making air quotes um is not of interest to them and mm-hmm. i think it's a similar ethical challenge yeah. and i don't think the science is suggesting anything curative i mean it's it's still a long way yeah. off from there um
1: but i think that's what we're all concerned about well, that's what we think about about all this, uh, but we would love to hear what our listeners think about this very complex topic. So, please email us at outwardpodcast at slate dot com.
2: Coming soon from Slate Podcasts.
1: So.
3: If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag
2: queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. All right. Our next topic for this month is McCrae Game. He's a gay man who founded and ran one of the country's most prominent conversion therapy organizations, Hope for Wholeness, formerly Truth Ministry. He he ran it for 20 years And late last month, the Charleston Post and Courier ran a big feature on him. So McRae taught people that if you gave in to your queer desires, you were going to hell. He says multiple clients of his attempted suicide. And he says he was never, quote unquote, cured of being gay. He was first sent to conversion therapy by his parents before starting his own organization. But he says he never believed you could be quote-unquote cured. He always felt attractions to men. He says he struggled with porn. Uh um, But he believed and he taught that you should never act on those queer desires. So he got married. He had two kids. He and his wife are still together, by the way. But he was fired from Hope for Wholeness in 2017, and he came out after that. Now he's fully embracing his gay identity. He has disavowed the uh, entire institution of conversion therapy uh, because it causes so much harm. He's uh, wearing a tank top in his Facebook picture. His profile <laughs> image is surrounded by a rainbow border. He's posting topless selfie videos after his workouts. He's flirting with men in his Facebook comments. It seems like he's really you know, doing pretty well he seems like he's really found a way to now embrace his gay identity in a cultural way, in addition to a sexual way. So that's great. But I will say, it's always a challenge for me in situations like these, where I know he himself has gone through so much emotional pain and struggle, but he's also caused so much pain. So I'm very emotionally conflicted every time I read a story like this, and this is far from the only story like this. You know, several people who have led conversion therapy practices have come out and said, you know what? That didn't work. I did a lot of harm, and guess what? I'm still gay. How do you guys react when you read about this kind of thing?
3: Well, I just want to cite the Onions reporting on this story, (laughs) which the headline for which was Apologetic Conversion Therapy Founder offers to electrocute past patients back into being gay. Mm.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. I think that one. particular
3: treatment <laughs> of humor and darkness sort of says it all. I think um, I listened to an interview with McCray Game that Christina had recommended to me, and it made me feel very, very sad. It made me feel deeply sad, and um, I think it is a sad story, a tragic story, and I'm glad that he's come out, and I... I, as somebody who has not like ever been affected by the evils of conversion therapy or the sort of monolithic church in this country, I'm lucky to be able to say that. And mm-hmm. I think there are many, many gay and lesbian people in this country who will feel differently. Yeah, and I do not blame them.
1: Yeah, I, I would like to be able to feel only sad because I think that's the most grace, gracious, graceful approach to something like this. I mean, he's what a what a horror to have live his life put yourself through that kind of bizarre um from my point of view torture um however as someone who grew up in grew up in south carolina actually where he was is based um and around not in like the evangelical church but definitely around the the church the sort of big american church like the, the way you just put it i have anger too i i have a hard time Forgiving or, or, sort of overlooking the, all the pain that Christina just described, because um, it's real and it, 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 it doesn't. You know, you can ask for forgiveness. You can, you can sort of um, wish to atone, but you know, lives have been lost, according to him, um, and and untold. You know. <laughs> Uh, emotional pain has been done to people. Therapy bills are expensive, (laughs) like, if nothing else. Like, it's just, it's serious. And I I don't know, I would, let's put it this way. I would have a hard time seeing him walk into my local gay bar in his new tank top and feel like that was chill. Um, Mm -hmm. I'll put it that way. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I was thinking about the question of, you know, whether... I would or whether we should welcome people like this into our queer communities with open arms. I mean, on the one hand, uh, it, trauma and you never know how trauma is going to affect someone. On the other hand, it, it also makes me angry to see him saying things like, um, you know, most LGBTQ people have been ridiculously kind to me. Uh, You know, sometimes I'll get angry messages when I'm on my gay dating app, but for the most part, people are really nice. I get so angry, like, and I know I'm not proud of this. I don't think it's the right response, but I'm almost like you don't deserve to wear that boy brief bathing suit yet, (laughs) you know, like give the culture a little time, give these communities a little time from when you decided, okay, now I'm gay to when you expect to be fully welcomed into the community. And, and, you know, it's funny that I know I keep mentioning all these um, like outward ways that he's telegraphing his gay identity. And I was trying to unpack, like, why does that make me so mad? Mm -hmm. And I think it's because it's, there, you know, people are are beaten up for wearing those kinds of things in public yeah, yeah, by absolutely. by people who um, are empowered by what he has been doing for the past twenty years. You know, they see this man who says, "I'm gay and I just choose not to act on it," and anyone could do the same, um, and who's married and and has kids with his wife, and they w- will look at their own kids or other people in their community. And, you know, people who are out and proud and wearing their earrings and having their rainbow Facebook pre- profile pictures and saying, well, if, if this guy could do it, McRae mm-hmm. game for 20 years, why can't you?
3: I mean, I think if nothing else, this show, this sort of gives the lie to the larger evangelical project in such a damning way. Mm. Um, he himself describes gay and lesbian people as the lepers of the world. and. <laughs> You yeah. know, Jesus did not say like take the lepers and like electrocute them until they were cured. <laughs> yes. That is not that was not Jesus's teaching. Ooh. And you know, I feel for for him as an individual because you can't help but feel that he was enacting something much larger, much bigger than him. He was it was distilled down into his personal um, mission mm-hmm. or his personal um, ministry, but. It was being conducted by the forces, like, the sort of, like, really craven American political forces that, you know, say, oh, we should, you know, well, this will be the issue in the culture war and we will empower um, a a small set of people to take over the church. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's just the the irony is so nuts. Like, this is the exact inverse of what Jesus said. Mm -hmm. And... Um, we'll let them do that for the sake of advancing a, a, a very specific political agenda. And it's so mm-hmm. it's so sad and it's so, you know, uh, Christina, I share your sense that I would, you know, it's sort of like maddening to see him embrace all of these things that really cause real harm to real people. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and, and to be able to get away with it and celebrate it. But he just, it feels like the problem is not really him.
2: Mm, yeah, you're right.
1: That's That's so impressive of you. (laughs) Uh. No, I really, I really, I'm really, I'm serious. I really am sitting here feeling challenged by that because I think, I think it is, it is easy. Anger at something like this is, is pretty easy. Um, but, but seeing it the way you just described as sort of a structural problem that he's, that he's just enacting is, is I think true, um, and, and hard. I mean, Speaking to Christina just your your point about like why the the signifiers were so upsetting to you I'll just add to that quickly that like the other thing that makes me that makes that hard to swallow is that that means he was like paying attention to those signifiers yeah. while he was doing this like you don't you don't just know what the cute swim whatever swimsuit you said was <laughs> um he's he's been like he was plugged he was like somehow observing queer culture gay culture even while he was doing this, and so that mm-hmm. that is that is tough. Um, but but again, what a weird, crazy place to live, you know, mentally for him. So I'm I'm going to try to adopt Ramon's like <laughs> um, benevolence because I think it's I think it's healthy.
2: I want to mention one other strain of conversation I saw around this news, which was um, a lot of people, including a lot of straight people, saying things like. Well, there's another one, or like, of course, you know, is anyone surprised? Which I totally get. Like, yeah, obviously, somebody who's the head of a gay conversion therapy um, organization. It, and used to, quote-unquote, identify as gay or whatever. Like, Of course, it's not a surprise when they come out. But it also feeds into something that I've seen, even around people like Mike Pence, where people will be like, oh, I bet he's closeted. Or mm-hmm. like, you know, only only a, a gay person could be so homophobic. Or like, this is evidence of some sort of repressed desire that he has. Um, and I find that extremely objectionable, too. And I, I almost feel myself starting to get protective or like it's its not until of I Mike see Pence. people saying,
3: <laughs> oh. <laughs> not a Mike
2: Pence, but about people, people who then do come out as gay. So there was another, um, I forget who it was, another, uh, a big name religious leader recently came out as gay, you know, after having preached against gay people for decades and decades. Again, a common story. But it wasn't until I saw straight people saying like, you know, here's here's another one of these that I started feeling like, well, hold on a second. Right. Like mm-hmm, this, right. it's homophobia is not gay people's problem. Yeah. We certainly there's certainly plenty of internalized homophobia. Gay people can be complicit in homophobia and enact homophobia clearly. But I don't want to get to a place where we're saying there's a connection between LGBT identity and Causing LGBT people harm.
1: Well, it it like reinscribes this weird, like, armchair psychoanalytic thing about like gayness or queerness somehow being tied up with repression yeah. or like weird, no. like, like un, unsalutary, like, psychic, you know, uh, structures or, or something. Uh, that that's bizarre sentence. Uh, <laughs> no, but, that was
2: a great phrase. But but
1: you know what I mean? Like, the, the, there's something essentially like pathological, uh, like, on some level about. Queerness, And so it produces people like this, like that's, I think that's like a, a, a strange subtext there, even as the people that you're the straight folks that you're talking about are, are ostensibly like supportive of the existence of queer people. Um, it's, it's like weirdly taking part in this old, like Freudian thing um, from, from, you know, that we've, we've abandoned. So that is, mm-hmm. that is strange. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and I, I, I think that
3: McRae game himself would have said even, you know, earlier before before he came out, that you know it, it's hair splitting, but what they're talking about really is. choosing not to act on what's termed gay impulse. So basically what they're saying is that you can be gay, you know, as Mm -hmm. determined by God or gene, whatever, and you can choose otherwise. And in coming out, essentially what he's saying is that he's choosing otherwise. He's choosing to get laid effectively. (laughs) And, you know, that is... So that makes the whole thing kind of weirdly sorted. Mm-hmm. Like it, it like it just reinforces that it's about sex mm-hmm. and not about all of this other stuff that's baked into it. And I share your sense, Christina, that it's really irritating to hear this described as a sort of a, a repressive instinct as though you can't just be a jerk who hates gay people for no reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and also
2: because the um, the the repressed part isn't coming from within. It's coming from, uh, you the know, trick. external forces. Absolutely, yeah. And so in this podcast that you mentioned, Ruman, um, McRae went on the podcast of a friend of his, a minister named Charlie Vensel. Um, I will say it was a pretty calm conversation considering I, yeah, that. Yeah, um, I agree. Um, yeah. that Charlie, you know, just sort of says outright, like, I do think that... Gay acting on gay desires is a sin, but, you know, like, let's hear each other out. Um, And he also said it would be good if this conversion therapy actually worked because there are so many people distraught over this that they kill themselves over it. So his perspective is that the cure for LGBTQ people hating themselves isn't in the faith tradition or the culture that made them hate themselves but in changing the nature of those LGBTQ people. And for me, that's the hardest part of this because it tells me that as long as there is homophobia in families and in communities and in our sort of national rhetoric, there will be a market for something like conversion therapy or for taking you know some sort of a study on gay genes and trying to apply that to changing somebody's nature. Um, even though McRae says you know he doesn't think that being gay is necessarily biological, um, but he also believes that it's not something you can change through therapy or, or even should change through therapy. He thinks that now. Um, but it's just this opening in the marketplace that is waiting to be filled and there will be LGBTQ people who want to fill it and, and pay to, to have this sort of therapy mm-hmm. as long as they are being uh, oppressed and, you know, from forces outside themselves.
3: I, I have to say, I think that their inter- that interview with Charlie Vensel was really interesting. And one of the most, uh, it was very reasoned, it was very common. One of the most striking things to me was that Wenzel himself talked about the leaders of the church, and I'm using church in a really broad sense here, quote, obsess over homosexuality. Mm -hmm. And that just shows us that, as you're saying, Christina, this is like a marketplace question. Mm -hmm. This is that people with power have determined this to be a problem because they can monetize it and they can um, harness... Um, a indignation, a sort of sense of moral panic around this to accomplish other things. It's precisely what you see around um, pro-life conversations in this country. Yeah. It's, it's being harnessed by um, political forces and, that's, and there are real human costs inside of that. And that's why I guess I heard that and just felt so sorry for this man because it was this feeling that he was just this tiny player inside a much bigger fight.
2: Listeners, we would love to hear what you think about this story. You can email us at outwardpodcast at slate.com. And, uh, you know, would you slide into the DMs of a former conversion therapy practitioner? We'd love to hear it.
1: Okay, so that's about it for this month. But before we go, it's time for our usual updates to the gay agenda. Christina, what do you have for us?
2: I'm recommending an article in Atlas Obscura by Raina Gattuso. Mm. Uh, It's called The Founder of America's Earliest Lesbian Bar Was Deported for Obscenity. That's the headline, and it's a pretty good summary of the article. There's just so much great, rich world-building and history in this piece. It starts out as just a really interesting history of this woman, Eve Adams, who was the proprietor of Eve Adams' tea room in the West Village in New York. It opened in 1925. It was a hangout for queers and particularly women and also for Jewish intellectuals who were shunned from other establishments Mm. at the time. There was a sign outside, apparently, that said, men are admitted but not welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of a joke, but probably a little bit serious.
1: Mm -hmm. So
2: Eve just seems like this incredible butch. There are some great photos in the piece. She hung out with Anais Nin and Emma Goldman. She hosted people at this bar. She published lesbian short stories. And then she ended up getting arrested in a sting operation by an undercover NYPD officer, a woman, who um, it sounds like kind of seduced Adams. And then when she got to Adams' bedroom, took this copy of a lesbian story collection and uh, used it as evidence to arrest and deport uh, Hmm. Eve Adams and it's a terrible ending to the story. She was eventually killed at Auschwitz. Jesus. But it, it's the story of this beautiful life and also cruelty beyond measure. And it made me think a lot about how the homophobia and transphobia is intersecting with the human rights violations currently being committed at the US border. You know, trans people being held in gender inappropriate detention facilities, being mm-hmm. denied health care, surviving rape, ICE separating HIV positive parents from their children. And many of these people are fleeing persecution. Back home, too. So I loved this piece because it felt very current to me and also just was a very clear eyed view of a woman who I had never heard of before but is incredibly interesting to me. And I'm, I'm really excited to learn more about yeah, her.
3: Yeah, where is the biopic? Yeah. I know, seriously. Yeah, it sounds like it, yeah. And
2: who would I cast <laughs> is the question. <laughs> Again, the title of it is The Founder of America's Earliest Lesbian Bar Was Deported for Obscenity in Atlas Obscura.
1: That sounds fantastic, Christina. Thank you.
3: Um, yeah. Roman. This fall, the National Book Foundation is going to give its 2019 Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters to the writer Edmund White. Mm. And the previous recipients of this very significant award include John Ashbery, Maxine Hong Kingston, Stephen King, Judy Bloom. And hearing this, I was really reminded that Edmund White was a huge figure to me when I was a younger person. I read his novel, A Boy's Own Story, furtively at the age of 16 or 17, and I haven't read it in the years since. People talk about it as kind of a gay uh, catcher in the rye, which I think doesn't really speak to the level of White's writing. He's mm. a beautiful, elegant writer. He's had a huge and very prolific career. He wrote a biography of Jeannet. And I know many gay writers of my generation consider him a mentor. And so mm. this fall, I'm going to reread A Boy's Own Story, mm-hmm. which I have not read for you know 24 years. And just Preparing for this, just glancing back at it, I realized that the book was published in 1982, which is when GRID, now known as AIDS, was Mm -hmm. first identified. And there's something very striking about that to me, that uh, White chronicled his own generation of gay men, I think he's in his 70s, just before the ensuing generation was really decimated. Mm -hmm. And we don't have a lot of texts like this, and it's striking to see the author of one really be welcomed into the firmament of, you know, American literary history. Yeah. So I think it's very exciting, and I'm excited for him, and I'm excited to revisit that book. Yeah, yeah that sounds excellent. Super well-deserved.
1: Brian, what do you have? Well, you guys are so, like, serious. Mine's, uh, <laughs> mine's serious, too. I, no, it's good. So last night, I went to a concert of the wonderfully queer artist Mika, do we know Miko? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. Like Mika? Uh, that's kind
2: of a throwback. Yeah, for me.
1: yeah. Oh. No, he, well, it's a throwback because he's actually kind of been away for a while. Um, people might remember the love lollipop today, song,
2: love today, yeah. love today. today. <laughs> yeah,
1: there was there they were there were some bops back then. Uh, like God, I feel like in like college. <laughs> so that's kind of what I think is in a lot of people's heads. Um, and he has he has been sort of away from recording and touring for a while. This is the first tour I believe in six years, something like that. So he's back, and he's got a new album called uh, My Name is Michael Holbrook. That's coming out in October. There's some singles out now. One called Ice Cream that's wonderful. But I just I love really that he
2: has an l- ice cream song and a lollipop song. Now. Yeah,
1: yeah. Also, lots of songs about colors. The the show is structured around colors, which was lovely. Ooh. If people aren't familiar with him, or if you haven't listened in a while, go check it out. Get your Spotify up or whatever and listen. He's got the spirit of Freddie Mercury inside of him. It's like insane to watch this person who just has this kind of fey muscularity down that like <laughs> that that I attribute to to Freddie or to like an Elton John or someone like that. But it's new, it's fresh in him, it's beautiful. He has like a composer's sort of musical sensibility. Um, he's done orchestral albums and it really, the music really stands up to that. Um, and he's also adorable. <laughs> um, I'm a little bit in love. He um, has this beautiful floppy hair. By the end of the concert he was like soaking wet, uh, which was great. Um, <laughs> go listen to the music, listen to the old music, listen to the new music as it comes out. And the show—it's called the Tiny Love Tour. If it comes near you, definitely go. I am serious—that this is certainly the best like queer concert I've ever been to, and also the best concert I've ever been to. Wow, really? He, he holds a room, man. It's like it's nuts. So get there because amazing.
2: You've convinced me. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. Please keep sending us your feedback and your topic ideas. You can reach us at outwardpodcast@slate.com at or via Facebook and Twitter at Slate Outward. Also, if there's ever any advice you need about anything in your queer life, send it our way. We might read your question on the show. Ruman, thank you so much for joining us. Oh,
3: thank you for having me. What a pleasure.
2: Thank you also to Melissa Kaplan, who provided production assistance for this episode. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. Love you, Daniel. June Thomas, the senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts, is what made us gay. if you like Outward please subscribe in your podcast app tell your friends about it rate and review the show so other people can find it we'll be back in your feeds on October 16th bye Ramon.
1: bye bye Brian see ya Christina
2: stay gay everyone
3: So first it was Dade County.
0: Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin.
2: In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people.
3: And then it was Wichita, St.
0: Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all.